0: Hi, I'm Delaney Rustin, physician and filmmaker of The Screenagers Movies, and this is The Screenagers Podcast. These days, a lot of parents are telling me that they have concerns around all the video gaming that their kids are doing, as well as social media and other screen time activities. Some are worried about the risks of their kids developing an addiction. Today I'm excited to have on the show Ed Spector, a psychologist who sees young people who are struggling with problematic video gaming and internet use. What are some strategies he uses that we can learn from to help all our kids have more balance? First, we talk about what is gaming disorder and what to make of the fact that roughly 50% of teens report feeling addicted to technology. All of Ed's clients right now happen to be boys, but he has worked with girls as well. He and I have spoken together at a conference on these topics, and I find him to be incredibly thoughtful and knowledgeable. I'm going to refer to him as Ed, And here
1: he is. So everyone who comes to see me is in some ways very entrenched with technology. Some of my clients meet the criteria for a gaming addiction or what would be a digital addiction. um, And others are just having problematic use.
2: And what ages do you see?
1: Uh, The average age of my clientele is about 18 with a bell curve around that. So I have a few middle schoolers. I have a lot of high schoolers and I have a lot of 20-somethings.
0: Ed mentions common problems his clients are having when they come to see him.
1: Often failing out of school mm-hmm. is and failing grades is big, but sometimes they'll be like I don't have a, I don't have any friends.
0: Dr. Spector always looks for reasons that could be contributing to their heavy use.
1: If you trace it back, usually we're doing a functional sort of assessment of why is this happening? And it's happening because they have ADHD or because they have autism. And their perseverative interest for instance in autism uh is technology or technology gets them to their perseverative interest or if they have adhd well the whole premise of uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is that you have a hard time controlling the spotlight of your attention if your attention is on something that is really compelling you have an exceedingly hard time pulling away from it and I can't think of anything more compelling than a video game to pull away from.
0: Ed explains a definition of gaming disorder.
1: So it's like 1% to 6% of people meet the World Health Organization's definition of gaming disorder. So that's for over a year. They're perseveratively obsessed with gaming to such an extent that they have a Uh, functional clinical impairment in multiple domains, domains like school, social, work, and it's caused by that gaming behavior.
0: When surveys are done of teens in this country, about 50% of them say they feel addicted to their device or technology. Ed and I agree that most of them are not talking about addiction the way that we're talking about it in a clinical setting, such as gaming disorder, but it's still an issue.
1: So what we're seeing that's, you know, 50% of kids are saying they're addicted, they are recognizing that when they are in these digital worlds that are engineered to be um, very, very powerful and to impact us, that they feel that impact and often are not in control of themselves.
2: When I publicly speak that yes, you know, addiction to things like video games or internet and whatnot can happen and I show that in the film Screenagers. Mm-hmm. But I also say that we want to be really careful using the word addiction yeah. because two big reasons have always been in my mind. First is that I don't want kids and teens who aren't necessarily truly addicted to be thinking they are in the in the sense that they might feel hopeless to try to change things as well as don't want them to be using it as an excuse well i'm addicted and therefore why even try to make my life a little more balanced or whatnot yes
0: The main thing I wanted to talk with Ed about relates to the strategies he uses to help those who are struggling with their screen time and video gaming. First of all, though, what are things he wants for his clients that he wants all young people to have?
1: Teenager growing up needs to have lots of sophisticated and different coping strategies for dealing with the universe. And the only way you learn that is by having lots of different things that you do. The The problems you have to deal with if you are learning to play the clarinet are very different than the problems and the coping strategies you need to learn to be good at chess and likewise soccer and likewise, you know, being in your, I don't know, the talent show. You learn a variety of different ways of dealing with the universe.
2: I love that. And I think that, What is so attractive about video games, developmentally, that idea of obtaining competency Mm -hmm. um, is obviously so heightened. And so being able to level up in a game gets that uh, feeling. And so all those things you just mentioned are also ways for them to have small challenges, not just deal with the frustrations, also to build their sense of of self-worth and self-competence. Yeah, yeah. How do you help teens to say, okay, I'm going to commit and try to find something that I used to do and do it or find something new?
1: My argument to like do a diversity of activities doesn't always resonate with them Mm -hmm. because they're like, what's the big deal? I do my homework and then I like go and I play Fortnite for, you know, six hours. What's the problem? Um... And, and they're waiting, they're not feeling a consequence to playing Fortnite because mm-hmm. you don't know about all the great problem-solving skills you would have had otherwise. It's We don't experience opportunity cost. We know that our life isn't working out well, but we don't know what we would have had had we made healthier choices.
0: Opportunity costs, that's a big one. It's particularly hard for young people to really think about that because they're getting so much reinforcement from the things they get from playing, for example, video games. But we want kids and teens to have a host of things that they're doing in life. So what is an approach Ed does with his clients to promote this?
1: I ask them to create sort of categories of things that they do in their life every week or even every day, things that are the most important to them. And to build those categories, and usually they play out when we do that exercise in terms of, there's like, here are the things that are social. Here are the things that I do that are academic if I'm in school, or I do sports. And we get a long list of what those things were. Uh, And then we generate things that you can do in COVID that are in those categories. So we generate substitutes as well. And you make it as fulsome as possible, and you keep shifting it as the circumstances change as things open up or close so when you're sitting there and you're like all right I need to take a break from the screen that I'm looking at you have this list ready for you that you can just go to and be like oh yeah right I was going to start sketching again or oh I was going to you know practice guitar Um, and you just keep revisiting it and you put it up and that keeps you at the diversity point because it's so easy just to like be like, well, this will occupy my whole afternoon. So I'm just going to stick with this.
2: And say that again, the diversity point.
1: We want to switch categories. So the diversity of all these different activities.
2: Let's say the teens aren't doing it. They're still just really, they get it. They make that list, but they're just not.
1: We talk a lot about motivation. Motivation I'm just not motivated to do the work or I'm not motivated. I'm just not motivated. To, I just couldn't I couldn't do it, so I just gamed. And I usually break down motivation into two sort of separate points because people kind of muddy it. There's the intellectual piece of, should I do that thing? Is that thing important for me to do? And a lot of times people will give you spot on why they need to do that thing or not game. Like, I know I did, I shouldn't have gamed. I had this big assignment. I knew I needed to do it, but doc, how do I... How do I find the motivation to do that? I'm like, well, intellectually, you have the motivation. But what you don't have is the ability to manage the emotions in that situation that get you to the point where you can do that thing. So either it feels too onerous to you to start this big assignment, you're anxious about it, or there's some other set of real complicated feelings that's happening. And as a result, you can't make good on the intellectual motivation.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So you know it's important, but you can't get yourself to do it emotionally. And that really becomes, do you have the emotional architecture, the, the ways of managing your emotions so that you can do things that are hard? Do you have adequate frustration tolerance? Mm-hmm. Do you have the self-talk that gets you to a place where you've, you've talked yourself into trying something? Or are you saying to yourself, it's pointless? Like if you have a lot of depressive, negativistic, catastrophic or sort of binary, like all or nothing kind of stuff going on, then you're not going to be able to get yourself to do it. And they'll often lie to themselves a good deal. Mm. So what they say to themselves in the moment, when they say it to me later, they're like, yeah, I mean, there's no way that's true. But I say it to myself and I believe it. In the moment.
2: Like, what would be an example?
1: In the moment, I'll say to myself, oh, I can just do it later. I, I can start at 11 o'clock tonight. It, it shouldn't take more than an hour. Like, you'll have someone say that even though they have the last year of experience that contradicts that. And they know it's it's hard for them. They know at 11 o'clock they'll be too tired. But they still believe it in the moment. yeah, yeah, yeah I'll just play one more game. When they know that one more game is not one more game. And they know that one more show is not one more show.
2: Okay, so now you've identified some of the motivational problems, like in terms of their feeling or their negative self talk. What would you say if they have a really hard time? They know they're going to just get frustrated when they do math, and that's really hard for them.
1: Right. I mean, cognitive behavioral therapy is great for this, right? Mm -hmm. This is the bread and butter of CBT is, you know, how do we. Uh, become aware of and change the way that we think about a situation so we get different feelings and different behaviors. Um, and so depending on the person and the situation, we're trying to figure out where that comes from, Where wh- what is it that they're actually thinking that's uh, making it hard for them. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, even just changing one word in the sentence that they're saying to themselves can make a big difference. So... Um, the I'm I'm never going to be able to do this to I might not be able to do this mm-hmm. can really change the way that they feel in that moment. And you can go through that with them. They have all kinds of cognitive distortions. I, I often am doing uh, distortion work around their thoughts and feelings about gaming and FOMO, for example. You know, it's sort of like, oh, but if you know, if I get off now, I'm going to, I'm going to miss out on so much mm-hmm. or, you know, I, you know, they'll say something like that. And, uh, and then I'll talk to them. I'm like, all right, so you were playing for five hours and you're saying hour six is going to be where the really good stuff happened. We'll talk through like, what's the likelihood of there actually being something really exciting and different happening in hour six. Mm-hmm. And they'll be able to be like, yeah, you're right. I mean, that's stupid. Like, I know really, I mean, now we talk about it like there's nothing really good going to happen in hour six, but I have that feeling that something good is going to happen. And so I'll have, I have people put like sort of redirects of like what they, we'll have them write down on a post-it the thought that is the healthier version, Mm -hmm. the more accurate thought. And I'll have them post it on their screen, on the keyboard, on the wall, wherever (laughs) they're going to see it so they can remember it. I have them draw pictures that, like, represent that thought. I try to get some sort of depth of processing in so that they they really remember. Um, Sometimes I'll have guys text me in the morning the three most important things they need to do that day. And then in the evening, they have to text me whether they did them or not, and if not why mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and i i had a, a a young man create a name he described this you know he did this with me and he says wow this is living on purpose
2: um, isn't
1: that great i just yeah. thought that was great
0: Ed describes other techniques he uses.
1: One one construct we often use is like setting yourself up for success or a successful outcome. What happens to a lot of my guys, for example, is they will the first thing they do is game a little or check in with whatever tech that they're doing. Mm-hmm. And that puts them their brain in a mode of like craving and it puts them in a gaming mode in a or a or a tech mode or a social media mode. And then they really can't get out of it. Mm. Um, and so we're front loading these other things because when you first wake up and when you're like in that mode of school, you can be, you're in a productive mode, you know, like, oh yeah, you know, I can just knock this out. And I was able to like, really like learn this thing or do this thing.
0: Getting that self-awareness of what sets one up for success. That's huge. Not just for these young people, but for all of us, of course. And in line with this is gaining insight into what sabotages our goals by overpowering our willpower. Ed describes that so much of his work is helping people realize the areas where their ability to do self-control is really limited or
2: impossible.
1: It's just helping them get to that point where they realize where they have no control, when they really realize it and are saying it to Mm themselves, you know, in this safe place where no one's policing. And just be like, you know what, I, I just cannot, you know, control myself around YouTube. YouTube is just, you know, awful um, for me. And, and, you know, even though they want it to be okay, you know, we've spent six months trying to make it so that they can do it in moderation. And at some point they, you know, if they can't, then they realize it. And then, then we can have a real pivot. You know, when we first start learning, wow, I'm like not really in control of myself around certain things.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, that's, that's important, um, you know, insight to have. I'll tell my clients, I tell all the time, I say, I don't ever walk into a Dunkin' Donuts because there's no way I'm not walking out with pre- three Boston creams. I don't care if I just say I'm, I'm going in there to get a cup of coffee. I know that that's just not fair to think that I'm going to have the willpower. So I'm just going to try harder is really not a good rationale. And so I don't go into Dunkin' Donuts.
0: This reminds me of all the research that shows that people who are really good at obtaining goals do so not because they have remarkable willpower, but because they purposely work to eliminate easy access to the things that they're trying to avoid. This reminds me a lot of why we launched a campaign a while back called Away for the Day, which has to do with cell phones in schools and how important it can be to have policies where they're put away for the day. Now, of course, things are different with COVID and and kids are home, but the premise and the campaign is still in full force. You know, the fact that is it really helpful for young people to have these tempting devices on them all day? Along with this is the idea that, oh, they just need to learn for themselves to be able to have the willpower.
2: Is that really fair?
1: The people who are profoundly successful in life as adults, oftentimes it's not that they don't have these weaknesses. It's that they're very aware of them, and they don't put themselves in situations where they have to be someone they aren't.
0: Ed about what he has seen with his clients during COVID.
1: You know, I've had I've had clients nosedive because of the pandemic, and I've had clients do better because of the pandemic. Mm. I had a guy who was in eighth grade, going into ninth grade, and you know, doing easily six to ten hours of Xbox, and he identified wanting to be in varsity soccer. And we I talked a lot with my clients as, as COVID began, like this is an opportunity here. If you don't walk out of the pandemic with major life skills in place that you've learned, some some new skill, new activity, new hobby, then you really wasted a massive amount of time and an opportunity. And he decided that he was going to be A freshman and um, be on varsity, which was like not likely, shall we say, in terms of typically that's not how it works. Um, And he was training twice a day. Like he he just leaned all the way in and it just pivoted for him. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And he was in with a crowd that was really toxic. um, And he also pivoted there and being in during the pandemic when we're not seeing anyone live it was sort of easier to say goodbye to one group and say hello to another one. And so he was able to prune his friendships a little to be healthier.
2: That's great.
1: And that was just beautiful to see.
2: Do you predict we're going to see a lot more of that 1% to 6% for gaming disorder will be higher?
1: <sighs> I really genuinely don't know whether people will really meet that criteria though uh, i i certainly hope not um uh, because mm-hmm. i think people are dying to get out and do stuff i think uh, people are gonna want to and i think parents if they're smart will when it's safe push their kids to go out and and do all these other activities when they become available my biggest concern is the parents who've just sort of been like so lax that. Um, that the kid's living a, an unstructured life and an unbalanced life. It's, mm-hmm. This is where it's so hard to be a parent right now because we have to be creating as best we can a structured life with good limit setting and a very diverse set of interests and hobbies still maintained.
0: Ed works with his own two teenagers to help them have diversity.
1: So I come down in the morning and I say, okay, what's the plan? And they'll just outline like their general categories. Yeah, today it's raining, I'm gonna go on the treadmill. Uh, for social, I'm gonna go walk over to a friend's house and we're gonna have lunch, you know, on their front yard, but 10 feet apart with masks. Um, I'm gonna, you know, do this Zoom call or I'm gonna, you know, they, they, they lay it out for me. And we're looking for shifting back and forth between uh, screen and non-screen. So you're getting breaks from the technology So that you can have sort of a robust day, but also so you can have a day that you're sort of, that was healthy, that had as many of the pieces of the pie as you can get.
2: Ed admits that, well, they're trying to make this happen. It doesn't always go as planned, but as a family, they try. I'm just reminded that all of us are trying
0: in our own different ways right now with our own different circumstances. Right now, in the grips of this intense pandemic, with so many hardships happening, economic, medical, mental health, and the list goes on and on. So how do we get through this? And how do we help our kids the best we can? It's not easy, and doing this work alone is really not easy. So anyone concerned about their child I always recommend getting outside help, whether that's from a school counselor, a primary care physician, other parents, therapists. And, you know, it's often not easy to know when you need support. And it's often a rocky path to get the right supports. But it's completely worth the work. That's it for our show today. And one quick thing, my new book, Parenting in the Screen Age, can be found at ScreenagersMovie.com, as well as you can learn about chapter clubs related to the book, and how you can watch the Screenagers movies right now with your kids, and so much more at the website. I want to thank Ed Spector so much for being on the show, and to thank my co-producer, Lisa Tabb. I'm Delaney Rustin, producer and editor of the Screenagers podcast. And hey, if you get a minute, please subscribe to the show, rate it, and share it. All of this really helps people learn about the show. Thank you so much, and I can't wait till next time.